I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, in the first of a two-part episode, we'll hear from Colonel Bud Anderson. Anderson served as a P-51 Mustang pilot in World War II and as the highest scoring living American fighter race. In the first part of his interview, Anderson describes how the Mustang came to be, the differences between allied and enemy aircraft, and an intense dogfight he had during a large-scale bombing mission near Ludwigshafen, Germany. Uh, My name is Clarence E. Bud Anderson. The Mustang uh, almost happened by accident. Um, It was uh, built by the North American Company right here in L.A., and... um, uh, they were a fledgling company in the early 40s, trying to get into the business. The war was on, and they had built a couple of trainers, and um, the British came over to the United States on the Lend-Lease program with a commission trying to find somebody to build fighters for the Royal Air Force. They... Uh, They went to North America and asked them to build a a current fighter that was in production in the United States, the P-40, built by Curtis and powered by an Allison engine. And um, they wanted North American to tool up and produce P-40s from drawings given to them by Curtis. So the North American company was uh, young and very aggressive and had some very talented people. So they uh, told the British, look, we can build you a better airplane. In the same time, it would take us to tool up to build P-40s for you. Well, that would probably be pretty risky. And uh, fortunately, the British decided to to bet on them. So they built um, a prototype and uh, flew it in some remarkable short time, something like 120 days. And uh, they would have flown it sooner, except the government didn't furnish them the engine in time. But anyway, remarkably short time. And they flew this uh, Mustang with uh, their modern technology, a laminar flow wing and an innovative uh, radiator system that actually gave it a little bit of thrust to offset the drag and uh, came up with, uh, with the early... Uh, Mustang, or P-51A, and um, it was still, because it had the Allison engine in it with a one-stage supercharger, it was still kind of a low-altitude airplane. And they built them for the British, and uh, they arrived over there, uh, I don't remember when, but kind of late after the Battle of Britain, and the Brits used them uh, for what they called Army cooperation and uh, reconnaissance and things like this, low-altitude flying. The war in Europe was fought at a high altitude, and therefore it really it was much better than the P-40, much faster, but still considered a low-altitude airplane. Well, 
uh, some uh, practical thinking people over there in uh, in Britain said, you know, this is a wonderful airframe. Why don't we mate it with our best engine, the Rolls-Royce Merlin? And so they did that and um, ended up with a very remarkable airplane. The Rolls-Royce uh, Merlin had a two-stage, two-speed supercharger, and that gave the Mustang outstanding speed at low altitude, high altitude. It was uh, quite maneuverable, and it had a lot of fuel, and uh, ended up being the answer to the the problem they had in Europe where the heavy bombers were being shot down because they didn't have fighter escort. So you'd like to believe that, you know, all this happened with brilliant planning that the, here, this Mustang arrives at the, at the right time. There was little interest in the Mustang in the uh, Army Air Corps. Uh, they had the solution already being worked on. It was called the P-67. It was going to be uh, built by General Motors. And um, the, the Rolls-Royce Merlin engine was already being produced in the United States by Packard Motor Company in mass production. So the engines were available. Now we got an airframe. But we've got this P-67, which was uh, kind of an abortion built all different parts of different airplanes, and it was supposed to be the long-range fighter. And uh, a uh, colonel at Wright Field flew the airplane, and he was very disappointed. He came back and found out that he told him, he says, hey, this airplane can't even defend itself, let alone defend the bombers, and we ought to get rid of it. And they'd already ordered a couple thousand of them. And uh, he was aware of the Mustang and the uh, Merlin engine. And he said, we ought to investigate that, try to put more fuel in it, and that should be the answer. Well, fortunately, he prevailed, and we got the P-51B model. And once we had that, uh, we couldn't, they couldn't get enough of them. Now, you'd like to believe that... Uh, once we had this airplane, they would immediately go to the 8th Air Force so that uh, they could escort the B-17s and, and, you know, and help them out. By the way, the, the, our concept of, uh, of bombing strategic targets with bombers in those days was that they could do it uh, in the daylight and they could do it in massive formations, and they could fight their way in and fight their way out. They didn't need fighter escort. The British had tried that and uh, got uh, tremendous losses, and so they reverted to night bombing. Well, the night bombing wasn't as accurate as day bombing, and so you know they were going in and doing area bombing where uh, our concept, the, the United States Army Air Corps, was that we had to do it in daylight to get the accuracy to destroy the targets that we wanted. Well, they started in uh, 1942, 43, and um, they immediately found out that uh, once they got it into deep in the target, when the f we did have fighters there, P-47s and P-38s, 
but they didn't have the range to go all the way to the targets and back all over Europe. So the Germans would just wait until the fighter escort left, and then they'd have at them. And uh, they had some the one of the big raids to, uh, I think it was Schweinfurt, uh, they lost 60 bombers. I mean, and that's uh, 10 men in each bomber. That's 600 men went down on that day. And it almost put an end to the daylight bombing. They, they said, now we've got to have fighter escort. Well, you know, we just can't do this without it. So the Mustang arrives on the scene magically due to brilliant planning, right? And then you'd like to believe that the first ones went right straight to the Air, 8th Air Force. Well, they didn't. They were assigned to the 9th Air Force in Europe, which uh, was the Air Force, the tactical Air Force that was being uh, preparing for the eventual invasion of Europe for ground support. Uh, fortunately, the, they were in England, and the 354th Fighter Group, the Pioneer Mustang Group, a uh, very famous fighter group, um, received these airplanes. They had essentially nothing to do, uh, you know, to get their airplanes and train and, and uh, wait for the invasion. So they loaned them to the 8th Air Force, which did the strategic bombing, as a fighter escort. They were so wildly successful that the Air Force demanded that we have the P-51B for escort. That leads me to one of my philosophies about warfare. It's not brilliant planning that wins. It's the side that screws up the least <laughs> that, that gets the brakes. But uh, once they got the P-51s, uh, to show you how uh, successful they were, they had uh, 15 fighter groups. And by the end of the war, there was 14 of them had converted all to Mustangs, and there was just one P-47 unit left in the whole 8th Air Force. It was a tremendous airplane. It was uh, good at high altitude, good at low altitude. It was very maneuverable, and um, I think in the hands of a good pilot, it could hold its own or do better than any of the enemy airplanes. And it had this tremendous range. Uh, we had about... Uh, eight hours worth of fuel in the airplane by the time they finished with all the modifications on it. It had fuel in the wings, and I've had a 85-gallon tank in the fuselage behind you, and then two huge uh, underwing tanks. And uh, my average, uh, average mission time was uh, four and a half hours. The longest mission I ever flew was uh, six hours and 55 minutes on D-Day. But that was all patrolling at, uh, you know, cruising speed, never using very much power. Uh, P-51 Mustang, it was a great airplane. My first impression of the Mustang, actually, uh, I think I was in a, kind of a state of shock. And I, I believe it or not, I don't, I don't have a recall of it. <laughs> uh, you have to realize now what happened. Uh, I was um, just arrived in the theater in England, and I'm a 22-year-old kid, you might say, in a foreign land, just about ready to go into war. And um, I received word that my best friend had been killed. 
in uh, December of uh, 1943, P-38 pilot. And about that time, I flew the Mustang. I, I don't even remember the date that I flew, first flew the Mustang, which really isn't that important. But my general knowledge of the Mustang, you know, in the next few days, and I was very lucky. I, I was, uh, when I got to combat, we had never seen a P-51 before, never even seen one, let alone fly one. We'd heard about them, but... Um, and then uh, I get several flights. I think I was one of the first pilots in the squadron to fly it. And uh, I was given a P-51 to go to the Royal Air Force uh, Aerial Gunnery School. And so I got about 35 hours in it before I went into combat, which was a real break for me. Uh, the only fighter I'd flown before was a P-39. And I instantly realized that this was a much better airplane. It was uh, much more honest, uh, a lot more maneuverable, and just it was powerful. Uh, it looked good in the air, and it sounded good, and, and it flew like a dream. The Spitfire was a great airplane, but it was built to fly right over the airfield. It was built for point defense, so it didn't have that much fuel. And uh, it would take off and fight right over its fields and then come in and land. And uh, it was very maneuverable. And uh, what a Spitfire could do in an hour, we could do for eight hours. The early Mustangs, um, uh, I already talked about maneuverability, speed range, and we could outdive anything. It um, was still a tail dragger. And, of course, you had this tremendous big nose up ahead of you, so it was, uh, you couldn't see very good on takeoff, and you, you, you know, because you, you had this big nose up there. So you had to you work with that. that. That was a bad feature because it was a tailwheel airplane. The um, other thing was the early B models had a birdcage canopy. It was a wraparound, and you opened it like this over the top of you. So you had these crossbars on both sides, and you couldn't see out of it very well. So the first thing we did was, uh, when we got over there, we put on what they called a Malcolm Hood. Uh, this was a, a replacement canopy that the British built for their early Mustangs. And it essentially was uh, like a fishbowl. With, turned upside down and put on, take the old cockpit off and put this thing down. And it bulged out over the side and the back. You could look out and count the engine stacks, uh, exhaust stacks on the engine, and you could turn around and look this way behind your tail. It was tremendous. The visibility out of it was great with this canopy. Then later, the D-Dog model had the, the long bubble canopy of the classic Mustang. And tremendous visibility out of another good feature. The only uh, bad points that I can think of in the Mustang was that uh, to get that tremendous range in, they put so much fuel in it that uh, the aft fuselage tank, the one right behind you, gave it an aft center of gravity. And uh, the airplane was actually unstable in, um, with a full fuselage tank. So you had to manage your fuel properly if you were going to get into into combat early, 
you didn't want to fly. You didn't want to fly in a maneuvering flight with a full fuselage tank because it gave you a stick force reversal. I'll try to explain that. When you're in a turn, you're pulling back on the stick. You have a positive force there, and you're, the airplane is, is balanced. And, uh, but as you tighten up the turn with the FCG, the airplane wants to, tends to want to come up this way, and you end up pushing forward on the airplane to keep it from doing that. It's unstable. If you'd let go of it, it would tuck right up and stall on you. So that's not a natural thing for a pilot to do. And uh, you have to counter it, and you have to fly very carefully. On instruments, it was pretty much unstable. Uh, you know, if you went up or push it down, the airplane stayed there. Uh, it had very light forces. So um, to counter that, what we did is uh, if we knew we were going to get in combat a short-range uh, mission, you took off and you burned half your fuel down. So then when you got into combat and you dropped your external tanks, um, you were ready to fight. Uh, if you wanted every bit of fuel, you kept that fuel you took off on a left main or a right main. One of those uh, fed some fuel back from the carburetor in there. And uh, you took off. You went to your drop tanks immediately, ran them dry, dropped them, then go to your fuselage tank, run it halfway down. Now you're ready to fight. But uh, if you wanted all of that fuel, you, uh, you took off, go to the externals, then uh, when they're dry, you burn this thing down. Well, if you got jumped before your drop tanks were dry, you would have an unstable airplane. And that did happen to me once, and it's kind of a long story, but it's another good dogfight. <laughs> um, the other thing was uh, a negative aspect of the P-51. The war, I told you, the war in Europe was fought at a high altitude. And the airplane, um, we're talking 30,000 feet up, unpressurized cockpit, cold, very cold. Uh, frost would build up on the, on the canopy. Sometimes you have to scrape it off. It was very cold in the cockpit. Uh, we had this little um, tube down there, and it, it said on the top of it, heat. And that was supposed to keep you warm, but uh, there was no heat coming out of it. Very cold airplane. Other than that, that's about the only deficiencies that I could say about the P-51. After I flew the Mustang for uh, enough time to be very comfortable in it, and after I got an, the experience of uh, dogfighting with some enemy airplanes, uh, I gained the confidence in the Mustang, and uh, I didn't worry about uh, whether it was an Emmy 109 or with Focke 190. If I saw one or the other, I would uh, attack them, and it, whichever one I had, the, you know, was closest or or had the advantage over, because I didn't. I, I felt that I could defeat either one of them. Yeah, we're talking about the um, difference between um, the P-51 and the ME-109 from an armament standpoint. Well, there were several models of the ME-109s. 
and uh, also a couple of models of uh, P-51s, three different ones, and Germans, ME-109s had many, many models. But let's just stick with the P-51B and the D. Uh, P-51B model uh, had four 50-caliber machine guns, and I forget the uh, total rounds on um, on the B model, but I think I think we we still probably had about thirty thirty seconds of fire of ammunition at the rate of fire versus the load. The B model had six guns, three on each side, and we had two thousand plus rounds and still about thirty thirty seconds of fire. The Germans. The ME-109 had the cannon through the nose, 30 millimeter, and then either two or four 7.9 millimeter. Uh, the ME-109 had a cannon plus maybe two or four machine guns, uh, 7.9 millimeter, and a 30 millimeter cannon. Uh, I think they had less ammunition than we did. You would say that the... Um, the cannon would be the heaviest, you know, the, that would be the heaviest firepower between the two, but the ammunition with less time that they could fire, and then the 50s were heavier than their 7.9s. So I don't know whether you'd call it a draw or what, but the big cannon, if you got hit with that, would have would have been devastating. It was designed to shoot down bombers. Well... P-51 versus ME-109. I felt that the Mustang was uh, superior in all ways, personally. I've learned later that that, that at a low altitude, the the, uh, uh, ME-109 was was a formidable enemy uh, in maneuvering flight. But my personal experience... uh, the airplanes were pretty close in in performance as far as um, maneuvering flight. That's one thing we're talking about. The Mustang was faster, could dive faster. I think it was better at high altitude. At low altitude, uh, maybe the 109 had the edge. Uh, I'm not real sure. But I think in the hands of a good, uh, good pilot, uh, the Mustang could certainly hold its own. Uh, one thing that we had over the enemy was the fuel. We flew to Posen, Poland. We went down to Czechoslovakia. We went all the way to Russia on uh, shuttle missions. I didn't go any, but I mean the Mustang did. And for example, uh, I could fly deep into Germany, drop my tanks, and I still had bags of fuel. The ME-109 was a very short-legged airplane. It probably had maybe an hour and a half endurance. And we could sit there and dogfight all day with them, and and, uh, they're going to run out of fuel, and we can still dogfight and fly all the way back to England. I think most historians agree that um, we broke the back of the Luftwaffe in the spring of 1944, which gave us air superiority, 
which allowed us to invade Europe, the invasion, uh, D-Day, December, uh, June 6, 1944. Uh, air superiority was mandatory uh, to accomplish that invasion of Europe with the masses of uh, boats and men and things like that that uh, came across in, on Normandy. And as we know now, um, uh, only two enemy airplanes came up that day to counter the, that massive invasion. And, of course, it was some, <laughs> I remember my things about brilliant planning or screw-ups. Uh, the Germans really screwed up on that one. They thought it was a feint at first. They had their forces tied up, and Hitler was because the only one that could give the permission to release certain units, and he was asleep, and they didn't dare wake him up to ask him. And so, again, you know, the side that screws up the least, <laughs> more important than brilliant planning. But we're, we're talking about uh, German Air Force, German pilots, and things like that skill. Uh, the German Air Force uh, had a had a very skilled pilots, uh, very experienced, um, and experience is uh, the way you judge a fighter pilot. Uh, more experience he has, uh, the better he is. Uh, like anything you do in life, their Air Force, of course, started flying combat in Spain, nineteen thirty way before 39, and then, of course, 39, 40, 41, 42, uh, they were fighting. Battle of Britain was all they had, and across France, into Poland, into Russia. So they had a lot of experience, and they had good airplanes, a very formidable air force. What they lacked was um, a pilot replacement training program. Uh, follow-on pilots to come later. They, I don't, I don't know what they're planning. They figured they were going to do a quick war and it would be all over, and they'd be in charge, and they didn't need it. So, um, so what happened? Uh, we started with the idea of going in, bombing their factories, uh, going after the oil, ball bearings, uh, critical, critical things for production. Uh, I remember one thing when I first got to um, Europe, we started reading the intelligent reports, and uh, I looked at the figures on how many fighters they were producing, and I remembered at at the time that I left, when I finished my second tour of combat, I looked at these same figures, and they had more airplanes. They were still pumping out airplanes faster than they were when I first got there which kind of amazed me. You know, here we are bombing these factories. I thought we were shutting them down. What they were really short of was pilots. And uh, again, uh, this is another lucky break. Uh, when we first got to uh, England, the 8th Air Force was run by, uh, really run by the bomber command, the bomber elements of the 8th Air Force. And they had this concept that the B-17 could uh, fly to the target, fight its way in, fight its way out. Remember, we called it the Flying Fortress. And they flew in these massive formations, uh, 
333333 over here with all those 50 caliber guns uh, forward and aft and sideways. Uh, they felt they were invulnerable. Um, flying fortress. So, well, then they, uh, as I explained earlier, uh, they found the, the sad news was that didn't work. And they had to have fighter escort. Well, the concept of fighter escort in those days was you stay with the B-17s. They wanted to see you. They wanted you to fly almost in formation with them. And that wasn't the way to do it. Uh, we actually had instructions to, if the bombers were attacked, you drive the enemy away, drive him away, and then come back. If you went through it, you could chase them through 18,000 feet, and then you had to leave them, come back, and, and escort the bombers. And uh, fighter pilots complained about it, but uh, they were, you know, the 8th Air Force was run by bomber pilots, and they said, mm -mm, you fly formation with us, drive them away. Okay, and um, shortly after I got there and started flying combat, um, General Jimmy Doolittle took over the 8th Air Force. And um, one of the first things he did was he changed the rules. He said, okay, guys, now when you engage the enemy, you pursue and destroy. And that gave us the green light to... to um, follow the enemy down, uh, take them down and kill them. And that's when the victory started to soar in the spring of 1944. And eventually we just uh, overwhelmed them with, uh, we had so many airplanes and we killed so many of their pilots that uh, the, it began to show. Now that's not to say that they didn't have good pilots to the end of the war, uh, after all, uh, we had uh, Gunther Rahl, <laughs> uh, Adolf Gillan, Eric Hartman. All these guys survived the war. Um, but later on, after the war, well after the war, I learned that oh, sometime after that, there was a, they had a lot of inexperienced uh, pilots in the air because they, didn't, they just didn't have the program. So you had great pilots and you had inexperienced pilots in reality. Now, we didn't know that. Um, so when you saw a German airplane, you treated him like the Red Baron. I mean, you used every advantage you had over him. And uh, uh, without the knowledge of knowing who was in that airplane, Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. 
Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. We're talking about a uh, mission was flown on uh, May 27, 1944, by the 8th Air Force. A huge uh, bomber mission, and our job was to do fighter escort. The mission was to uh, go to uh, Ludwigshaven, Mannheim area, and uh, bomb strategic targets there. I don't know what what they were, but... uh, uh, I don't even remember. It was a massive uh, attack, you know, probably 800 bombers and 800 fighters escorting them, something like that. I don't know. By the way, on that particular day, the the weather was incredibly clear, which was very unusual in uh, there. Most of the time we had weather to climb through an overcast and rejoin and things like this and and uh, added to the difficulty of things. But this was one of the days that was just incredibly clear, almost all the way to the target and back. And um, our mission would be to escort the bombers. Now I need to explain a little bit how we did that. This was uh, in May, so it's uh, we still have the pursue and destroy um, option. The way we did that after Jimmy Doolittle told us that to uh, kill the enemy, let's say the bombers fly in this long stream, and they fly in these uh, clusters of, uh, I don't know how many airplanes, but uh, 369999 nine, nine, uh, here, and then another big formation here, another one here, another one here, in these long, uh, long streams. And they uh, pretty well would uh, assemble, fly along, pretty straight line, make a turn, do their bombing run, fly on out, and then come on back. Kind of a big triangle, you might say, from England. And uh, it's remarkable sometimes. You'd see these uh, huge formations of airplanes going over. And, you know, you've seen the days when um, you leave the contrail. The, the, behind the airplane, 
And uh, on certain days, you have a little short contrail. On some days, you have these long, persistent contrails that stay in the sky. Can you imagine what a thousand bombers and a thousand fighters must have looked like from the ground? You know, it must have been uh, pretty intimidating. Uh, but uh, on this particular mission, no contrails, B-17s, fighters, our jobs to escort. So we put the close escort a couple thousand feet above them, and you just kind of did a zigzag or a big, slow S-turn over the top of them. Then we'd send fighters out to the side to patrol up and down. And then we had a few others that would uh, were kind of freelance. They could go on up ahead and uh, break up the big formations of enemy airplanes that were getting assembled in large formation to come and attack the bombers. The German pilots were under orders to knock down the bombers. That was their primary mission. And uh, so the dedicated ones, um, well, generally speaking, you, that's what they tried to do. We did get attacked by uh, fighters. Sometimes they brought in... Um, fighters escorting fighters or ones to jump the fighters and try to get them away so the main body could come in and attack. Uh, in this case of our uh, dogfight, the subject of our dogfight here, we were attacked first by probably enemy fighters trying to drive the escort away so a major force could come through. I don't know you know, the the total statistics of that day, I looked it up, and uh, we lost four airplanes, and uh, we claimed 20-plus uh, uh, destroyed on that day. So it was a major attack in that area. Normally, the German fighters would uh, go after the bombers, and uh, but occasionally they would have other fighters come in and, and uh, escort especially early in the game when they had ME-110s, the twin-engine things, they would always have other Messerschmitts, Fockwells go with them to kind of protect them. And uh, their job would then be to, uh, if, if the 110s got attacked, they would go after the fighters. But their primary mission was always to go after the bombers. And, uh, it wasn't rare, but occasionally they would attack the fighters first. But it might have been a tactic. Some people always wondered why they didn't jump the fighters early when they came in over the Dutch coast, make them drop their tanks, and they didn't do that. Uh, I think it would have been a mistake for them to do it because, uh, you know, we would have nothing to do except <laughs> go after them, and they probably would have lost more airplanes that way. It's kind of speculation. They just didn't do it probably didn't have the airplanes, and their primary mission was to go after bombers anyway, so who knows. So uh, on this particular day, um, I was on the close escort uh, right over the top of the bombers. On the close escort, we had two of these four-ship uh, flights doing the close escort on our particular uh, thing. We're taught when we go on these missions, we are taking 48 airplanes. That's three squadrons of 16 airplanes. And then we'd break up and put them up and down the, the bomber, our assigned bombers. And then there were other fighter groups doing the same thing. 
So uh, I'm on a close escort. We were uh, deep on the mission. We were still in France. Now, this is in, uh, well, all the way across France. Uh, we're darn near down to Switzerland. I think uh, Strasbourg was the uh, closest big city, and there's a big river that runs through there. And I knew when we passed that river, we were in Germany. Uh, France was occupied, of course, at this time. So we're, we're cruising along. We hear on the radio that up front, ahead of us, they were being attacked. So uh, we pushed our power up, dropped our tanks, pushed our power up. And I was on the second flight, and as we turned like that, we kind of got strung out, and this put my flight as tail end Charlie. Whenever you're tail end Charlie, you want to look around behind you because uh, you're vulnerable. So as we added power, trying to pick up speed, um, I turned around to look at my 6 o'clock, and about that time, my wingman's on the inside. He calls out, hey, we got four bogeys, unidentified airplanes, attacking us, coming down on us from 5 o'clock high. All right, we're right here like this. This is the four of us, and we're being attacked from here. We're very vulnerable. You know, if we continue around, they're just going to come right in and get us from the 6 o'clock position. We see them plenty of time. I identified them immediately as ME-109s. And what you do there to, to uh, break an attack, you turn around and, and come at them head on. Uh, this is a standard tactic. And uh, if they get a shot, it's going to be very difficult. It's going to be head on like this. And, and, and I had one of those once, too. <laughs> it's, uh, that's very exciting. Um, okay, so we turn like this very hard. When you do that, that puts your flight into what we call string formation. You're in a line of a trail, one, two, three, four, just kind of following each other. Then you can maneuver very hard with that. So I get it turned around. We come at them head on, go like this right through us. They didn't have a chance to shoot. Now, what do you do? You're both you're separating from each other. I'm looking back at them, see what they do. They start a left turn. They don't dive away. They don't they turn left, so I turn left. Now we got four ME-109s on this side and got four Mustangs coming around like this. And they had the initial advantage because they had altitude above us, so they had speed. We broke the attack. They decided they want to fight. So they're coming around, and we're coming around now in a big left circle. This, this goes about two times. The Mustang was right at the altitude that it performs best at high altitude, exactly where I needed to be, full power, takeoff power, 3,000 RPM, and we gradually gained on them. So we've turned their advantage now to our advantage. They're across the circle, and each time we come around, I'm a little closer to getting in trail with them. They see that. And when they came around, they roll out. They're still one, two, three, four in trail, and they went back towards Germany. Uh, they tried to climb a little bit, and then they leveled out. This was the ME-109G, their best high-altitude fighter. And they probably thought, hey, we can outperform the Mustang at this altitude. They either didn't, 
hadn't engaged us before or had limited experience. I don't know which, but they were pretty good pilots. They fly in good formation. So as I, I just turn out and follow them. Now we got four Mustangs, four ME-109s. The, the last German, the last ME-109, he starts to climb. And he's climbing like this. So here I'm coming under him. I'm after the three, but I'm looking at this guy, and I don't want to get too far up or he can drop down on me. So I sent my, remember we had uh, two and two. I sent my element of two. I said, you chase number four and my wingman and I will will uh, chase the other three. He did that, and he shot that number four guy down later. So now we got three Hemi-109s, two Mustangs. Now, when you shoot somebody down, the best way to do it is to get right here, what we call six o'clock, dead astern, no angle off, no angle off and just close in as close as you can and shoot him down. In this case, that's what I did with this number four guy. I just drove up behind him, shot him, and pieces start coming off, start smoke coming out. And he did an incredible thing at that time. He rolled over and flew inverted like this. And I thought, what the heck's he doing, you know? Uh, if he's going to run away, he just would roll over and pull away. I don't know whether he was uh, inexperienced or very experienced because it's pretty difficult to fly a, at that altitude upside down and maintain it. Well, it didn't matter because I'm sitting there right side up very comfortably and, and pump some more shells into him. And, and then he uh, really came apart and uh, smoking badly and uh, out of control. And I'm not white. I'm gaining on him and I'm after the other two guys. Those guys now are dancing around a little bit, trying to look back and see what's happening. Maybe this guy was hollering, you know, hey, I'm getting my butt shot off back here. Uh, let's do something. And anyway, he's gone. I've, I've, I'm sure he's shot, killed, or out of control. And I'm pressing on to get the other two guys. They were dancing around like this, and all of a sudden, they made up their mind. One guy says, going to run, and the other guys are going to stay and fight. And the, the leader rolled over and went back, and the wingman came around like this. Now, remember what I told you about um, how shooting at, at somebody? You don't want to be at this 90-degree angle. And he has a fixed sight, so he has to estimate that range. He has to, he has to point his nose ahead of me to uh, get a successful shot. If he's down here... There's no way he can do it. He's got to, he's got to get, get up like this so he can point ahead of me. That's a very difficult shot to shoot here at a, at a very high angle off. And so you want to get in that 10-degree cone or maybe a 30-degree cone at maximum, but never out here like this. And so I, there's a point there where he was close, but I felt confident because he just did not have a lead on me. So this guy comes around at a hard left turn. I'm out of range. I could try to turn in here, but he's got a good angle already. I could pull it to idle and maybe get down here and get behind him, but I've lost my energy and he might still have his energy and come around here. So what I did was 
I decided to cut across to the top. You know, he'll be over here. And, and you do all this stuff by instinct. You don't, you, don't, you don't have it all figured out. You just you do it instinctively. You know, what you, you know that he lost some of his energy by making a high turn. So I went across the top of his path there pulled up, traded my airspeed for altitude so I could gain some advantage over him. He's going to turn hard. I'm going to keep my speed up, get a little altitude, then watch and see what he does. If he continues to turn around, then I can come back around and drop on him. If he dives away, I can chase him. The one thing he might do if he thinks he's got an advantage is reverse his turn and try to come after me. But... I feel at that point that I have the energy, I've outmaneuvered him and will have the advantage. What did he do? Okay, he makes this hard turn, I go across. Sure enough, he turns back and tries to follow me. I'm pulling up, I've got a wingman over here. And I'm looking back at him and I see him go like this and I know he's going after my wingman. So I told uh, John Scarrow, I said, John, he's coming after you. you do a defensive maneuver, take it down, just, uh, roll it, do whatever you can to, to uh, defend yourself. And I'll drop in behind him, and uh, maybe we can get him that way. So John did that. Sure enough, boy, they he went right after him. But there I am. I just pulled out, and uh, now I'm in a good position to, to uh, shoot at him. I will be. He sees that right away. He comes out and straightens out pulls away, then he comes around on this hard turn again. Well, I said, I out-zoomed him last time. I think I'll try that again. So <laughs> I cut across him, pull up, hoping that he's going to do something else, continue turning. or But no, he comes around, and he starts following me, pulling up. And um, now I've got the problem. So I pull up. He took this option of coming around and try to follow me. Now, we've got fixed guns, and I know that he has to pull a lead on me. He has to get his nose pointed ahead of me. He's below me. I can see him. I can look back. I can see that hole in the prop where the big cannon is. And I'm in big trouble if he can get that gun pointed right at me. Uh, I'm pulling up. We're both losing airspeed at, at a pretty significant rate. And pretty soon, one of us is going to stall first. And whoever does that is going to be in big trouble. If he stalls first, he's going to have to drop out. That'll put me on his tail. If I stall first, I'm going to slip down, and he'll be able to get a lead on me and blow me out of the sky. I know that I've got a little more energy than he is, but uh, I'm thinking about plan B. I tell you what, I can close my eyes and I can look over my left shoulder and I can still see the nose of that Messerschmitt. It has a big hole in the end of the propeller hub with a big cannon uh, designed to shoot down bombers. And uh, I can look over my shoulder and still see that airplane. Now, he's down below me and I know that he has to get up here like this. He has to lead me. And he's actually below me. I see him pulling, so I'm pulling. We're both pulling. Well, pretty soon we're going to run out of airspeed and ideas. And like I say, I'm thinking of a plan B, and I see the airplane shudder. 
and I, he's starting to lose control, and I'm still flying good. He has to rudder it over to keep from stalling and go down, so I'm back following him down again. This time he straightens out. We separate a little bit, and uh, I'm figuring out what's he going to do next. Here he comes around with another hard turn to the left. I didn't want to be up on front of that guy again, so I thought I'd try a different tactic this time. It was a little bit different. I had a little better angle on him. So I pull it in hard, and I said, I'm going to try to stay with him and get a lead on him and shoot him in this position. I put down a little 10 degrees of flaps, which you could do in a Mustang, a little maneuvering flap. Um, made you turn a little bit tighter. I cracked the throttle back just a little bit, not, not a lot. And pretty soon I see I'm going to make it. He sees that. And he's either got to do one or two things. He's either got to roll in and dive away and try to get away, or he can, he probably thought that I'd pull the thing to idle and lost all my energy to get inside, and then he could outclimb me. So he turns the airplane, reverses it, and pulls up as steep as he can. And I just shove the throttle forward. He pulls up. He's in a left-hand turn. I come up here, and he starts a little right-hand turn. I start firing right in here, and I saw some tracers go across his right wing a little bit. I pushed a little bit of left rudder, and then pow, hit him right in the middle, right in the wing root all around the cockpit and the engine area. Tremendous uh, white vapor came out at, uh, initially. And then he just suspended in the air. He uh, almost stopped. The prop was probably just windmilling, and I shoot right up to him. And I'm flying close formation with him right there. He I, I was almost where I could see in the cockpit, but there was smoke in it. And he rolls very slightly, and I'm, I'm right here. I'm so close, I can see the wheel well and the rivets and the grease and everything. And he just rolls over and goes down, starts down. I followed him down through, oh, 20,000 feet. I was going faster than I ever been in my life. I was going too fast, and I pulled the throttle back. And I said, well, I'll follow him, and I'll just stay up, stay higher. And if he levels out, he'll, I'll just cut across, and I'll still have the advantage. Well, he was smoking now. He's just black smoke pouring out. It must have been a mile long, and he's just going straight down. I remember I said it was a very clear day, a beautiful day, and I, I got down to about 10,000 feet. And pretty soon I see down there, I see this, I see his shadow. And he, he and his shadow met, just tremendous explosion. It was a pretty exciting day. We rejoined, got my other flight back together. John saw this explosion up in the air, and he knew it was uh, either me or the Germans. So he came over and found me, and Eddie Simpson and his wingman joined up, and we went back escorting. We'd shot that. We'd been attacked by the ME-109Gs, their best high-altitude fighter. We'd uh, defeated their attack and turned around and shot down three out of the four. It was a pretty successful day, and I'm glad it was me and not them. That was Colonel Bud Anderson. To hear him describe how and why he joined the Air Force, his training, his appreciation for his squadron, and more, listen to the second part of his interview coming out on June 23rd. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. 
If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.